The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Thank you, JR, for preaching last week in my absence, and I got feedback from many of the saints that they were blessed by your teaching. You taught the Bible. I gave JR just one job. Just teach out of the Bible, and he got it. Praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 18. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago to bring you up to speed. We are going through the book of Acts. We're now near the end of chapter 18 in our English Bibles. It's 28 chapters, so we're past the midway point. Ever since Acts 13, we've been highlighting the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles as he seeks to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world in his day in the Roman Empire. He's been making great headway and progress doing that. We saw his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey already that we concluded last time. Traveled thousands of miles visiting new territories, countries, cities, cities famous, world famous cities he'd never been to before. Where he had the wonderful privilege to bring the gospel for the first time to many of these places, preaching Jesus Christ. God blessing by bringing believers, those who repented, and then Paul trying to establish churches and raise up leadership where he can. That's been his work for those two missionary journeys. Now we are going to embark and cover Paul's second missionary journey, which actually begins, I mean, his third missionary journey, which begins in Acts 18, starting at verse 23. Begins his third missionary journey, and it will go from 18 to 23 all the way till about mid-chapter... 21 of the book of Acts, it'll cover, span many years from about 53 A.D. till about A.D. 59. Most of his third missionary journey will be in the world-famous city at that time, the city of Ephesus, which was a destination that Paul, early on in his missionary career, wanted to go. He tried to go the first time, and God didn't allow him to. He was able to briefly stop by there in his second missionary journey, preach in a synagogue, plant the word. People got saved. He left Aquila and Priscilla there, and Aquila and Priscilla, in his absence, began to build up a church in the city of Ephesus. And now in the third missionary journey, Paul's going to spend most of his time back at Ephesus. It was such an important city. He's going to spend almost three years in Ephesus alone. A distinctive of the third missionary journey, uh, and there are distinctives of each of his missionary journeys. Sometimes we get them all clouded and mixed up. But a distinctive of the third missionary journey that we're about to study is that Paul goes out to all these cities. And as far as we know, he didn't visit any new cities. He didn't plant any new churches. So the distinctive, and this is an important one of his third missionary journey, Paul isn't being an evangelist church planter as much as he's being a pastor of churches that already exist. That is incredibly important. And that's his primary work. We need not just evangelists many times. We've got to go out and evangelize. We've got to save the world. We've got to win the world. Yeah, we, we need evangelists. Some people would even put evangelism as a priority over other elements of ministry. I'd say no. Ephesians 4 is clear. God gave to the church for its growth, maturity, and edification, not just one gift, evangelism, but many gifts, gifted men, starting with the apostles and the prophets who laid the foundation of the church, 
And in addition to apostles and prophets, God gave other gifted men. Evangelists, yes. But also pastors and teachers. And pastors are called by God pretty much to stay localized at a local congregation with a group of believers already and to shepherd them, to teach them the word of God, to help them live life and all of its challenges and struggles through the grid or the spectrum of the, of the word of God. That's what a pastor's supposed to do. And so Paul does some of this shepherding in his third missionary journey. As a matter of fact, he even, uh, looking at verse 22 of Acts 18, it says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up uh, to uh, greeted the church down to Antioch, begins his third missionary journey, verse 23. And having spent some time at his home church in Antioch to get some reprieve, he's ready to launch in his third missionary journey. He left and he passed successfully through the Galatian region where he had already planted churches, churches of Galatia, Lystra, Derby, those church, Lystra and Derby and Iconium. So he went through Galatia and also Phrygia, which is part of Asia Minor, where he planted churches there as well. So what is he doing? The beginning of his third missionary journey. He's visiting churches that already existed. He's encouraging the saints who are already there. He's being a pastor. He's shepherding them. He's giving them more of the revelation of God. And he's also explaining the revelation of God they already have via the Old Testament or whatever. And he's being a pastor. And he's raising up leadership as he goes through these churches. So this is really uh, the third missionary journey shows the heart of Paul as a shepherd, as a pastor, as he gets to know his people in his local congregations by name. He loves them. He has a heart for them. He's, God's called him to do this. He's given his life to shepherd the people of God. Having a local faithful shepherd or shepherds by way of elders and overseers is vitally important for a church, for a healthy church, uh, for healthy Christians to grow. Incredibly important. So I, I got to meditate on that this week of thank God, thank you, Lord, that you've put this desire in my heart as an elder slash shepherd to love a specific group of people, to be committed to them, along with the elders we have at this church, we all have the same mindset. We are committed to our local sheep, feeding them, praying for them, serving them, modeling for them, helping them. That is so important. That constitutes a tremendous percentage of my ministry as a pastor. I really don't have my eyes on the world and expanding my ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm kind of myopic. I first and foremost care about the people of Grace Bible Fellowship. So no, that's what God has called me and our team of elders to do. And Paul's just a wonderful example of that. As a matter of fact, we could read from Corinthians where Paul loved his people so much, despite all their foibles and idiosyncrasies and, and sins and talking behind his back. And he says of the Corinthians, I love you. Not only that, he loves them so much, he, he worries about them all the time. Get this, Paul said he even loses sleep over the condition of his sheep. I can relate to that. A beautiful shepherd's heart. Okay, with that, let's go on to verse 24 through 28. So uh, we've been looking at the ministry of Paul since Acts 13. All of a sudden, we take a break. It looks like a parenthesis. And starts talking about this guy named Apollos from verse 24 to 28. Apollos out of nowhere and goes into detail about what he's like, how he's gifted. And then it goes right back to the ministry of Paul in chapter 19, verse 1. And it's like, well, that seems weird. That's kind of odd. Why has that come up out of nowhere? 
It's all Paul, 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 and then all of a sudden this guy named Apollos, and then we're back to Paul for the rest of the book. Well, there are logical reasons why Apollos is mentioned here. Luke is now writing in about 64 A.D., which would be about 10-plus years after these events happen. And I think one of the reasons Apollos is in here is because in hindsight, the Spirit of God led Luke to write a little biographical vignette about this very important and influential man of God named Apollos that God raised up almost 15 years into the founding of the church. And so letters had already been circulated like 1 Corinthians for almost 10 years, and people, Christians, are reading about this man named Apollos in the book of Corinthians. Who is this Apollos guy who apparently went into Corinth and was a powerful preacher and and a faction developed at the the clique of Apollos competing with Paul and who is this guy? And so Luke answers that question for the whole church by giving some background on who Apollos is, where he came from, how he was raised up, how he ended up in Corinth, and how he complements, not undermines or competes with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So this is beautiful. This is logical. This makes sense. Thank you, God, for giving us this little portrait about this amazing man named Apollos. So that's what we're looking at today. This man named Apollos. As a matter of fact, the sermon today is just called Apollos, exemplary apologist. Apollos, exemplary defender of the faith, teacher of the gospel. Let's go ahead and look at it. And I came up with three points about Apollos. Point number one, verse 24. And I would have to say, if I had to pick one trait that was memorable about Apollos was that he was mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Oh, to be mighty in the scriptures, to have a command of the word of God. And that's what Apollos had, verse 24. Now, a Jew, so Paul is now going through Galatia. He's about to go into Ephesus. And before Paul gets to Ephesus, the Holy Spirit allows us to see ministry going on in Ephesus just prior to Paul coming to Ephesus. Little background. So just before Paul gets to Ephesus, it says, now a Jew... Jewish, he's raised, born a Jew, raised a Jew, practiced Judaism. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scripture. So point number one, Apollos had a command of Scripture. It says he was Alexandrian by birth. We could go on all day about Alexandria, which is on the northern coast of Africa in Egypt, just on the west side of the Nile River, the second most prominent city historically in the days of the Apostle Paul next to Rome. Alexandria is amazing. Uh, Alexander the Great pretty much founded that city in 300 B.C. He also had Jews put there in Alexandria. And the Jews that he planted there in Alexandria grew and blossomed to almost 50,000 plus in the days of the Apostle Paul. There's a huge constituency of Jews in Alexandria in the days of the Apostle Paul. So there's a synagogue there, and there's a very prominent synagogue, maybe even more than one synagogue, in this world-famous city of Alexandria. Alexandria, highly populated. Alexandria, also from a biblical point of view, noted for the fact that it was the place where the Septuagint was translated. That is highly important. About 250 B.C. up until about 120 B.C., The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, starting with the first five books of the Old Testament. The Septuagint. The Septuagint was completely intact in the days of Jesus. The Greek translation 
of the Old Testament, translated first in Alexandria, so a very significant city. The apostles and Jesus himself quoted at times from the Greek Septuagint and the Hebrew, but also the Septuagint. It's very interesting. So it was a legitimate translation of the Bible, according to them. So this is where he's from. So, and he's a Jew. So he grew up Jewish. He grew up in a synagogue. He grew up being trained by his Jewish parents, the Old Testament. He didn't know it as the Old Testament, but the Hebrew Scriptures. He was very interested in the Hebrew Scriptures. He, he grew up and it came to a point where he actually believed in Yahweh on a personal level. And this all happened in Alexandria. He is, his native language was probably Greek, being an Alexandrian. As he grew up and matured and became a man, it's noted that he was an eloquent man. He was a man of logios, a man of words or a man of ideas, probably a man of words, meaning he was very eloquent and articulate in the way that he spoke. He was a powerful speaker. This was not necessarily from training and going to schools of oratory and delivery and debate. This was probably a natural gift that God had given him from birth, a natural gift. And then when he becomes a believer, that gift is empowered and energized even more by the power of the Holy Spirit for the gift of teaching. So uh, there are people like that or just gifted naturally at certain things, and he was gifted incredibly in terms of how he spoke and a great economy of words and very powerful in the ability to persuade, uh, a unique ability to explain things and make them clear to people. We know this from Apollos. Paul was not naturally gifted necessarily as an erudite speaker like Apollos was. We know that from Scripture. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, point blank to the Corinthians, he said, you know, when I, when I came to you, I didn't come with persuasive words of speech. As a matter of fact, and then he goes on to chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, saying, and when I came, I came to you trembling, weak, and in fear, and not eloquent, not erudite, not like the polished Greek speakers. So he was definitely very different than Apollos in how he communicated and in his delivery. But Paul's power was in the content of the message, the power of the gospel. But Apollos, gifted by God with the ability to communicate verbally. But that's not enough. A natural gift of being able to communicate verbally is not enough. You cannot persuade a dead, blinded unbeliever who has a heart of stone. You can't persuade them into the kingdom of God with just sheer human eloquence and logic it's absolutely ineffectual it is only the power of the gospel that can do that so apollos needed something more in addition to his natural gift of being a great speaker and we're going to see that that happens in this story so there's this amazing verbose eloquent jew who believes in yahweh he comes to ephesus now, Aquila and Priscilla had just been left there by Paul. Paul was there momentarily, taught uh, in the synagogue, probably had some early on converts, a small group of folks. And for whatever reason, Apollos comes to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's what it means. He was mighty, in the, meaning he knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He was trained very well by his parents and in his local synagogue from Genesis to Malachi, even though they had a different order. He 
He mastered it. He knew it. He had a command of Scripture. He knew its main themes. And he loved the Word of God. That is just clear. He was mighty in the Scriptures. That, that mighty is the word dunamis, where we get that dynamite word. He, he was powerful in his command of the Old Testament Scriptures, starting with he knew it all. He was familiar with it. He probably had large chunks of it memorized with his keen mind and his great commitment and diligence to understand and know the Word of God, to know it comprehensively. It was a passion of his soul. He was mighty in the Scriptures. If I could pick an adage that was that I wanted to be typified by, maybe put on my headstone when I die, boy, that would be a good one, wouldn't it, as a Christian? Mighty in the Scriptures. Love the Word of God because the Word of God comes from God himself. So I thought this would be a good challenge for us. If you are a Christian, you should. one of your goals should be you want to progress to be to the point where you are mighty in the Scriptures. Are you as a Christian mighty in the Scriptures? Well, here's a little. I'm going to give you a quick little diagnostic test. You ready? I've got six questions for you. Answer these in your own heart and your own mind. And these have to do with kind of evaluating where you are. Are you mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures as a Christian? If you've been a Christian for any period of time, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, then you should be mighty in the Old Testament scriptures or at least on your way or at least aspiring to it. So I wanted to challenge us to do that. Here we go. Six questions real quick. Number one, have you as a Christian read the entire Old Testament? That's where it starts. If you haven't done that, start there. Read the Bible. Listen to it in your car. Put it on your headphones. Every chance you have. Have you read the whole Old Testament? Number two, where is the... These are specific questions. These are things you should know as a Christian in the Old Testament. These, this is not minutia. These are like high points. These are, these are major truths that you need to know in the Old Testament as they are fulfilled in the New Testament as a Christian. Number two, where is the first prophecy of the Messiah? Chapter, book, verse. You should know that. He said Genesis 3.15. Good job. Number three, what book and chapter will you find the Ten Commandments? Survey said Exodus chapter 20, as well as in the book of Deuteronomy. Number four, this is huge. Where in the Old Testament will you find the promise of the new covenant? Uh Uh-oh. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. You're born again. That's, that is the fulfillment of the new covenant. You should probably know where it's at, where it came from, what the context was when God gave it. So it's in Jeremiah 31 and also in Ezekiel, as well as a couple other places. But those are the most specific. And then number five, uh, where is the greatest, longest, most detailed prophecy of the death of the Messiah in the Old Testament? You absolutely should know that one. That is Isaiah 53. It's amazing. I had an unsaved family member whom I have been praying for for 30 years. Immediate family member. Send me a text about two months ago saying they had picked up their Bible after a long period of time and were reading it, and they came across Isaiah 53, and they asked me, boy, that sounds so much like Jesus, don't you think? I've been praying for this sibling for 30 years. Reminded me of the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Number six is the last one. Where is the church in the Old Testament? Where is the church in the Old Testament? If you can find it and you want to come and show it to me at the end of the service today, I'd love for you to do that. I would propose the church is not in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Because it didn't exist yet. I will build my church. And he did. Through his death and resurrection and Pentecost. So uh, just a little synopsis. Great reminder. We want to aspire and be like a man, like Apollos. Mighty in the scriptures. Keep persevering. And if you are absorbed in the word of God, reading the Bible. When's the last time you, I should ask that. When's the last time you read your Bible at length? <clears throat> How often are you reading your Bible? Are you taking it in on a regular basis? Like an, a spiritual IV. That's your, your, your life blood, your food. The meat for your soul, the scripture. That's how God speaks to us today. You have to be in the word of God on a regular basis for many reasons. One, to get saved. It begins there. You're not saved apart from the word of God. Uh, Peter said you've got to be in the word of God so that you can grow spiritually. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to your, your salvation. You're not going to grow as a Christian if you're not in the word of God. Neither will I. You need to be in the Word of God to get ongoing encouragement and hope. That's Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament, God did it so that we might be encouraged and have hope and that we might persevere in this life. If you're trying to persevere through the trials of life and you're not connected to Scripture, it ain't going to happen. Why should we read the Bible and master the Old Testament and read it regularly? Dave, or The psalmist in Psalm 119 said, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping his life according to your word. You gotta be, to keep your life according to the word, you gotta be in the word. You gotta be reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, meditating on the Bible, praying about the Bible in your life. And then he goes on two verses later, the psalmist says, I have treasured, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin. Why does a Christian have to be in the Bible, in the scriptures on a regular routine basis to fight against sin that lives in you? If you're not in the word of God on a regular basis, you will lose the battle to sin. And then finally, John 8, Jesus said, know the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth is the word of God. The Bible is the truth. Know it, know it, consume it, be aware of it, be in tune with it. Have it on your lips, have it on the forefront of your mind. Know the word of God, know the truth and the promises. It will set you free. What does that mean? It will give you discernment. It will give you stability, balance and objectivity of thinking in a very confusing world. Those are just some wonderful promises of being in the Scripture and, and being a person who wants to be mighty in the Scripture. Let's go on to point number two, following the model and learning more about Apollos. Apollos had a command of Scripture, number one. Number two, Apollos had a teachable spirit, 25 and 26. This is a sign of humility. That is one of the attributes that God commands and wants in his people the most is humility. To be teachable. To not be a know-it-all. Here is Apollos, mighty in the scriptures. He knows, he's a master of the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament better than Aquila and Priscilla in terms of its content. But here's an occasion where he becomes teachable and he becomes the student and sits under their teaching. He was willing to learn from anybody if they had truth to share. That's, that's humility. Verse 25, this man had been instructed 
in the way of the Lord. Instructed, by the way, listen to the Greek word for instructed. Kate kemenos, kate kemenos, kate kemenos, kate kism, catechism, catechism, echo, echo, echo is a key root in that word, echo, 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 has to do with sound, 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 something you hear, 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 echo. What is catechism? Catechism is learning by uh, learning orally through repetition. That's what it means here. That's how Apollos learned the scriptures. He learned it orally by repetition. You can just hear uh, or see him growing up in his uh, Jewish home from mom and dad or whoever taught him orally from the time he could even understand words. And then in the synagogue, learning orally the scriptures with repetition over and over. So he was categorized. He was taught by other people this information. And he was a sponge and he took it in. And he was taught in the way of the Lord. What does that mean? That's not the way of Christianity. That's not the gospel. The way of the Lord is just a generic phrase, meaning the things of God as they were revealed. Uh, The first time that phrase is used is in Genesis 18 with reference to Abraham, the way of the Lord. Things about God, the truth of God, in light of the revelation that he had. He had limited information, but what he had, he was taught. Now, he was taught, contrast this with the Apostle Paul. Paul was an apostle, uh, Apollos was not. And how Paul learned divine revelation, for the most part, was not through catechism in terms of the Christian truths and the Gospels. As a matter of fact, Apollos is going to be catechized by Aquila and Priscilla, the Gospel, because Apollos doesn't know the Gospel here. So he is taught of men. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, Galatians 1, 11 and 12, he said, with respect to the truth of the gospel and revelation that I have been given that I preach, I didn't learn it from any man. No man taught it to me. It was given to me through a revelation of Jesus Christ as an apostle. So he was catechized in the things of the Lord. And also, this, uh, the next phrase says, being fervent in spirit, being zeon in spirit, being zealous in spirit, literally being boiling in his spirit. He had a heart of fire. This is a passionate man. And you can see it in his personality, the way he talked, the way he exuded enthusiasm, the way he loved to talk about the things of God, religious things, the Old Testament, the scripture, just a passionate man. And it spilled over into his personality. He was not a humdrum, monotone, ho-hum kind of a guy. He was probably outgoing. It says he was fervent in spirit. That's not in the Holy Spirit. He's just is just his natural makeup. The way God made him. And he was fired. He is, you know how we say people are on fire for the Lord? That's where this comes from. Because that's the word. He was on fire for Yahweh. And the, the few things he had heard about Jesus. So this amazing teacher of the Old Testament who had heard some things about Jesus. He was speaking and teaching accurately. Accurately is a very specific word. Acrobos. Uh, and it means he taught with diligence. He was circumspect when he was handling the scriptures. Other translations of this word, acrobos, are perfectly, carefully. In other words, he probably thought the most serious thing in the world is to handle the word of God. And that's what the Bible says. Anybody that is a Bible teacher incurs a stricter judgment because this isn't just human information. This is the divine will of God and eternal soul's are at stake. That's why Paul told Timothy and other Bible teachers, you need to study to show yourself approved. You need to do it diligently. You need to cut it straight. There are high consequences for how you teach the Bible. Somebody's teaching the Bible or preaching, there's no room for being sloppy. 
or flippant or shallow or boring. Detailed like Apollos. The languages matter. The tense matters. The verb matters. The syntax matters. The grammar matters. The history matters. Somebody needs to be trained. And he was doing it accurately. What was he teaching? Well, he's speaking and teaching the things concerning Jesus. Oh, okay, so he knew something about Jesus, but not everything about Jesus. He was being acquainted with only the baptism of John. So somehow, as a Jew living in Alexandria, Apollos got exposed to the ministry of John the Baptist. And so what Apollos knew about Jesus was that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, set apart by God as the Messiah, and that John was the forerunner and fulfillment of the Old Testament, and that John the Baptist was calling people to repent, to identify with this Messiah. And that's that's all that Apollos knew. In other words, he... He didn't know about Jesus' death firsthand. He didn't know about Jesus' resurrection on the third day. And he didn't know about Jesus' ascension. And he didn't know about the day of Pentecost when God poured forth his spirit. He didn't know that. He didn't have the whole story. So here he is in the synagogue preaching the, the Old Testament in detail, teaching it accurately, and even pointing out how Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. But he's neglecting these passages regarding his death, resurrection, ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Aquila and Priscilla are hearing, they're listening to this man, Apollos, teach, and they're thinking, oh, this is good. He is detailed. Oh, he is eloquent. He is passionate. He is right on. He loves Yahweh. He's even got Jesus right with respect to what John the Baptist said about him, but it is deficient. Wow, he didn't go all the way. It's apparent that Apollos needs to be informed of what happened with respect to Jesus, of the most important part of Jesus' ministry, His why he came, death, resurrection, ascension, and the distribution of the Holy Spirit for salvation unto anyone who would believe. He didn't know that part of the story. This is a good reminder that just telling people, believe in Jesus is not always sufficient or adequate. Because it's like, well, what do you believe about Jesus matters. How much about Jesus do you know? I asked that very question to someone who professed to be a Christian just a couple days ago. What do you got to do to become a Christian? uh, Believe in Jesus. Well, Mormons believe in Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus. Hindus believe in Jesus. What do you mean by that? And they struggled, but they got it out. Well, that Jesus is the God-man. Very good. We have to have the complete message about who Jesus is and the complete message about what he did. Not just believe in Jesus. Verse 26. Because his information about Jesus was deficient, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, full of courage. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, so they're in the synagogue and they're listening, and it's deficient, and they realize, wow, um, he doesn't really know the gospel message. This is a beautiful thing. This shows you the heart of Aquila and Priscilla, how gracious they were, loving they were, mature spiritually they were. So instead of publicly raising their hand, in Sunday school class or whatever it was, synagogue class. Excuse me, preacher man. You missed the most important start of this part of the story. And then embarrassing him in front of the whole audience. They didn't do that. They had discretion. They had grace. They gave him the benefit of the doubt. And it says they took him aside. There's a compound Greek word used for that verb there. The NIV says, so they took them to their home. Which 
Thus began one of the most important ministries in the history of the church, and that's taking your pastor out to dinner. But anyway, or lunch. Um, the New Living McManus translation says they took him to Panera. But uh, it says they took him aside privately. So how gracious is that? How tactful is that? Took him aside means they took him privately aside and explained to him very carefully, acrobos, same verb, the way of God more accurately or more fully. In other words, they gave him the rest of the gospel message. And obviously, he just embraced it and believed it and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Boom. And now he's got, he is a completed full Jew now. And he probably now is one of the most capable teachers of the word of God alive in that day as a result. This is amazing. Teachable spirit, a humble man of God was Apollos. And then finally, point number three, Apollos was, in his preaching, he was Christ-centered. I love this because he was eloquent, he was educated, he was gifted, he had a passion of fire, People listened to him. He was probably interesting. He could hold attention. Yet he knew that he couldn't rely strictly on his human abilities as a gifted speaker. And so Apollos, no doubt, realized the importance more of the content of his message than the delivery. And we see that because this passage says that he was Christ-centered. Apollos was Christ-centered in his preaching. I love that. He, he's focused. Um, he's preaching Jesus, it says at the end of verse 20. He's preaching from the Scripture. He teaches the Bible, not human opinion, not secular science, not what's in the news, not tradition, not human, uh, what he thinks. I love it. He's preaching the Bible. Here's what the Scripture says. The human heart in and of itself is a verse to what the Bible says. It is a verse to Scripture. Its inclination, naturally, is to not believe the Bible. That's the human heart. So we need the grace of God to intervene through his Holy Spirit to soften a heart, to make it receptive, to remove the blinders. It's the only way it happens. That's the challenge. But, it's got to, but the teacher has got to be teaching the Bible. And that's what he's doing. And not only just teaching the Bible, he's not off on tangents or things that don't matter or third fourth secondary issues what's the most important thing christ-centered verse 27 so he hears the gospel more fully from the context it is implied he embraces that truth and now he knows the fullness of jesus christ and the gospel he gets to know aquila and priscilla and from their interactions together it's apparent that he respected Aquila and Priscilla and no doubt heard about their ministry. Where did they just come from? Priscilla and Aquila just came from spending a year and a half with the Apostle Paul planting a church in the world-famous city of Corinth. And it said, when we read that, that when Paul preached in Corinth, many believed. Huge church in Corinth, left behind. Paul is not there. Aquila and Priscilla are not there. And then that just primes Apollos' heart. It's like, man, really? That happened in Corinth? I've always wanted to go to Corinth. That is awesome. So that you mean there's all these new baby believers in Corinth without Paul and without the two of you? I want to go there. Can I go there? Can I go there and be with the saints and encourage them and teach them? I am filling in the spaces, but it's implied in what happens here. So when he wanted to go, so he wanted to go across to Achaia. That means he wanted to go to Corinth, to that church. 
And we, and we know that's exactly what he did from the first uh, letter of Corinthians. Apollos had a successful teaching ministry in Corinth. The people welcomed him. The people loved him. The people were blessed by his teaching and the man that he was. So he wanted to go to Achaia. So no doubt he asked uh, Priscilla and Aquila, you know what? I want to go there. They don't know me. I'm a stranger. So can you communicate with them and let them know that I'm coming? And would they be willing to embrace me as a brother? And Aquila and Priscilla accommodated him and said, absolutely. So it says the brethren, the brothers, encouraged him and said, absolutely, Apollos, you should go to Corinth. Not only were you encouraging you to do it, it says they wrote to the disciples in Corinth or Achaia to welcome it. They literally wrote a letter of reference. That letter of reference is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So he went with a letter of accommodation. Now, have any of you ever tried to get a job and you ask somebody for a letter of reference? That's exactly what this is, a letter of reference, a letter of commendation. I just thought that was interesting. I would challenge anybody who knows history. Find me some other book, culture, society, religion that had formal letters of reference. Just possibly another thing that came right from the Bible and people don't even realize it. So they wrote a letter of reference probably to the Corinthians and maybe some other churches in that area, uh, and they welcomed him. Verse 27 in the middle, it says, and when he had arrived, so he went there. And he had a, a wonderful ministry. It says he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He helped these new, young, immature Christians. What a challenge, these Corinthians, with all their past of ingrained sins of idolatry, sexual immorality. Man, they had a lot to overcome. The tremendous challenge for Apollos to do that, let alone their prideful attitudes and factious spirits. Verse 28 says, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Uh, verse 28, he powerfully, that Greek word uh, powerfully, loudly, loudly. Did I say Apollos was a loud guy? That's what the word means. He was a loud preacher. Pat, Cliff, you talk too loud. I know. Sorry. I love Apollos. He talks loud. He preached, taught powerfully or loudly. Some translations say vehemently, good translation, mightily. He was not a coward. What did he do? Loudly and powerfully. He refuted kate legketo, compound word. Di, sorry, dia kate legketo, major compound word with emphasis, meaning he it not refuted that that doesn't do it justice because of the compound nature of the word. It's like he really totally refuted and confuted those who disagreed with him, the Jews. This was a showdown. This was major. Many Christians today would would sit around and watch and oh boy, Apollo, he's being so offensive. Listen to how loud he's talking. He's probably hurting their feelings. That's not like Jesus. Yeah, it is. When needed, it is. You ever read Matthew 23? Woe unto you, hypocrites, snakes, sons of the devil. Read it. That's Jesus. And when it's needed, it's appropriate. And with these hard-headed, unbelieving, antagonistic Jews who despised the name of Christ and salvation by grace, Apollos had to crank it up. And you know what? He was the man set there by God providentially to do it. 
And for whatever reason, the Corinthian Jews weren't going to take him to task physically and beat him up. And Gallio had already said legally, no, the Christians, man, they're good. They can preach. They can teach. Don't mess with them. So he powerfully confuted. Literally, the word is literally argued down. Their false teaching, their blasphemy, blasphemy. It's called blasphemy earlier in the book of Acts, their unbelief. So he powerfully, loudly refuted, confuted, argued down the Jews, and he did this in public, in the synagogue, in the square, in Corinth. There may have been some Jews that were harassing the new Christians. Apollos intervenes in courage and just and talks them down. With what? The powerful word of God demonstrating by the scriptures. He's preaching from the Old Testament demonstrate because they're Jews showing from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ showing from Genesis 315 Isaiah 53 Psalm 22 Psalm 16 and so many others. Jesus is the Messiah that you claim to believe in. I wish I could have seen that. Amazing. Thank God for people like Apollos. We need we need all we need the whole spectrum of personalities and people with their gifts to complement one another in the ministry. And there are times some people need a soft spoken uh, Lydia, whoever it is. And there are times where God needs to use an Apollos. I, I guess that's why I'm in the world. But anyway, praise God for Apollos and taking care of his church, being Christ-centered. One last thing uh, right there. From the Scripture, so he was focused, Christ-centered. It's all about Christ. That's just another great reminder that in our evangelism, when we're talking to unbelievers, you've got to get to Jesus as soon as you can. Christ-centered. Don't stand there and argue about evolution. Well, you know, here's creation, and just have that debate. That's actually a waste of time. I've said this before. An unbeliever is not going to believe in a young earth or a literal Genesis 1 through 3 on their own. They can't. It, it is my, it's, it's a, a step of faith. And they probably won't believe it until after they get saved and the Spirit of God enlightens their understanding that that's what the Scripture says. We believe it by faith. And it's not the gospel. Getting them to believe in a six-day creation isn't going to change their heart of stone or get them into the kingdom of God. You've got to focus on Jesus. That's what Paul keeps doing every time. When he goes in the synagogue, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's the Messiah, who he is, what he did. Apollos, it's the same thing. With Peter earlier on in the book of Acts, the same thing. It is all about Christ. We need to be Christ-centered in our conversation, evangelism, and our worship. And this is a great reminder. After all, Jesus said, If you don't know him, you can't be born again. If you don't know him, you can't know the Father. It starts with Jesus. And by the way, when Apollos taught from the Old Testament about Christ, he did it legitimately. He used proper hermeneutics. He did it carefully. We saw that with that Greek word. Carefully, legitimately. And he taught about Christ in the Old Testament where it was legitimate that Jesus was there. In other words, he didn't teach the Old Testament allegorically. No. He didn't try to find Jesus in the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is about Solomon and his first wife. That's what it's about. It's not Jesus in the church getting married. That's just one example. That's distorting scripture. That's eisegesis. That's reading into the Bible what you want it to say. 
He found Jesus wherever Jesus could explicitly and clearly be found through proper hermeneutics or interpretation. Thank you, God, for reminding us of Apollos, mighty in the Scripture, humble and teachable in spirit and Christ-centered in all that he did. And may we be the same. Let's pray to the Father and thank him for this day. Father, we do thank you for our time together in the Word. Thank you for using Luke to preserve a very short sketch of this man named Apollos. May his life and faithfulness be a challenge to us, but also an encouragement. And God, we do ask through your Holy Spirit, through the encouragement of others, through the truth of your word, that we could emulate these admirable characteristics of Apollos, that we would pursue being mighty in the scriptures, that you would help us to continually be teachable in our hearts, and that we would be Christ-centered in all that we do. We love you, Father. We commit our time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.